Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I am a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all of the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all of the great reviews on iTunes and all the great feedback from everyone. If you like listening to the podcast, please leave a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. As you may know, I have created a PowerPoint slide presentation for patients that is available on the Chiropractic Science website. The presentation provides snippets of educational information from the chiropractic and related scientific literature from 200 peer-reviewed articles, 40 of which are from 2016. You can check out sample slides and get more details on the website. As for the podcast, my goals for producing these chiropractic research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Secondly is to encourage collaboration amongst researchers. And third is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. So let's get on with the interview today, and I'm really excited to interview Dr. Alan Breen. Dr. Alan Breen graduated from the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College in 1967, then traveled in North America, Australia, and Europe before starting a part-time teaching post at the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic in Bournemouth in 1971. He established a practice in Salisbury in 1974, which continues. In 1986, Dr. Breen became Director of Research at the Anglo-European Chiropractic College and focused on musculoskeletal research and epidemiology, encouraging staff to undertake doctoral studies. In 1999, he became Director of a new musculoskeletal research institute, the Institute for Musculoskeletal Research and Clinical Implementation, where he continues to work. Dr. Breen is also a professor of musculoskeletal research in the Faculty of Science and Technology at Bournemouth University. Dr. Breen published the first epidemiological paper by a chiropractor in a medical journal in 1977, then built a collaboration that resulted in a trial by the Medical Research Council in the UK. This was published in 1991 and had a positive outcome for chiropractors. His PhD project, which was completed in 1991, involved the invention of quantitative fluoroscopy, a technology that measures intervertebral motion in living subjects and which now has entered clinical use. He is a former member of the World Federation of Chiropractics Research Council. Dr. Breen's current work is mainly in the control of spinal motion at the intervertebral level. His previous work with epidemiological studies, trials, outcomes, guidelines, and implementation of guidelines. His biomechanical work has been part of his entire career, and he invented a way of measuring intervertebral motion, which was commercialized and outlicensed. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, which I'm sure we're going to talk about during the call today, uh, you can check out orthokinematics.com. Dr. Breen, it is an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. Well, let's start out with uh, um, some information about, first, uh, how, how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor. 
Well, I fell into it, really. I, I didn't mean to become a chiropractor. I was in, uh, in my first year of medical school and realized I couldn't pay the rent in the town where I lived. And I couldn't get into the medical school in the town where I, was, where I had a house. So I came back to my school guidance teacher in, in despair, and she said, Do you know, I have just, me, my husband and I have just been able to conceive because of chiropractic. You have to go and talk to my chiropractor. So I went to talk to his chiropractor, her chiropractor, who sent me to the to CMCC, who uh, welcomed me with open arms and signed me up immediately. So before I knew where I was, I was a first-year chiropractic student. <laughs> That's how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. So Probably a little strange. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> That's okay. terrific. Um, so... So you went to CMCC. Tell, tell me about your experience there. I'm interested in that. Well, I really sort of didn't know what chiropractic was or what had hit me. And uh, I, uh, I was surprised that chiropractors had to promote themselves so much. Uh, and I guess that was because, you know, they were an unorthodox branch of healthcare. And I thought this is really very strange. Uh, and I, I found that strange all the way through college. But uh, it was good fun. I made a huge number of friends there. I had a wonderful time as a student. I wasn't a very good student, uh, but I managed to pass with honors in the end, and uh, and off I went. That's terrific. So then it sounded like you did a lot of traveling, and I'm sure you had uh, practices along the way or did some locums. Uh, can you tell us about those experiences? Yeah. I mean, I, as you can see, I graduated in 1967, so guess how long that makes me being a practicing <laughs> chiropractor. I'm not going to say the number. But uh, the first thing I did was a locum in Australia uh, for a Canadian who's, uh, who married a Canadian and uh, wanted to have a break, come back to Canada. So I looked after his practice for five months and uh, had a wonderful time in Australia, always wanted to go back. And then I came back to Canada, did some jobs, the kind of job that I used to put myself through college, which is I had no money, so I had to work during the nights. I worked in a hospital doing lab tests. So I did more lab tests for a couple of years while I continued to travel in Mexico and America. And, uh, and then I came to England on the way back to Australia, but never made it to Australia. <laughs> I'm sorry to run on, but that's kind of how it, how it went. No, that's terrific. Uh, so how, how did you end up in, in the UK eventually? Well, it was a stopping off base uh, to get some money to go overland to Australia uh, but I, I never got to Australia. Okay. I got to Germany a couple of times uh, and then ran out of money. I was a pretty poor guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and then got uh, invited to do some lecturing at the British School of Osteopathy in London because I knew quite a lot about pathology, having done all these lab tests and autopsies. Um, so I helped the osteopathic students get through their exams, which they seemed to be grateful for. Uh, and then the chiropractic college down in Bournemouth, which had just started, heard I was around and uh, wanted me to come and work there. So I practiced uh, uh, as an assistant in Southampton while I worked there and uh, did some uh, lecturing at the AECC in about 1972. Okay, terrific. And do you continue to practice these days? I do. I have never stopped practicing. Oh, that's terrific. I, I started a practice of my own in Salisbury of ni in 1974, um, basically because we were having a baby and I had to stop fooling around <laughs> and make some money. 
Um, and that practice became incredibly busy. And uh, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to pursue my career in research if, unless I could uh, get some help. So I got a wonderful uh, assistant who became my associate who bought the practice ultimately and still lets me go there. Uh, and then I was able to come to the college again. Terrific. So yeah, so now I'm interested in how did you get into the research piece of things? Uh, I'm, I mean, I've always been interested in research. I've been doing research since I was eight. Wow. <laughs> I, I used to have a little book called My Diary of Medical Science, which I put absolute nonsense into. Um, but when I came to the college, one of the first things that struck me was that people were asking in the UK, what is a chiropractor? Because there are only 50 of them here in 1971. Okay. Um, and I met a professor of epidemiology from Manchester University who said, uh, would, you, would you do a survey uh, in, of chiropractors? I said, I would love to do a survey of chiropractors. And we had student projects here. You had to do a research project. So I had interested four of our students in going into practices and collecting 2,984 case files. You wouldn't get away with it ethically today, but we recorded everything that those chiropractors did to those 2,984 patients, which is a good epidemiological study, and had it um, analyzed on the Manchester University mainframe, which took up two city blocks. <laughs> uh, and we had these 90-column uh, punch cards and all these huge reams of SPSS paper. But that was this paper you talked about being the first epidemiology paper ah. we published in a medical journal by a chiropractor. It was called Chiropractors and the Treatment of Low Back Pain. And it basically showed that chiropractors to do just what you'd expect them to do. Uh, they, even back then, they were practicing the biopsychosocial model when nobody else was. Wow, um, awesome. And so that was, that was good to know, and I think it, it probably helped the profession too. At least I hope it did. Absolutely. That, that's really amazing stuff. I, I love to hear that. Now, you have um, uh, authored numerous publications and a variety of excellent peer-reviewed journals. And so during this talk, I'd like to talk about many of these papers, learn about uh, your uh, quantitative fluoroscopy as well. And so uh, let's go ahead and just dive into things. And, and the first paper uh, that I thought would be a good introduction to the audience to quantitative fluoroscopy uh, was published in Advances in Orthopedics. And uh, this is uh, basically talking about the use of quantitative fluoroscopy. And, and uh, I believe there's some biomechanical uh, implications in this paper too. So if you could just guide us through a little bit about uh, that paper, what is quantitative fluoroscopy, uh, that would be great. Sure. It's a, it's a way of measuring uh, dynamic biomechanics in the spine. The lumbar spine or the cervical spine, you can't do it really with the thoracic spine because of the ribs. Um, and it was done because um, all we had to measure uh, the biomechanics of the spine was flexion extension x-rays. Um, you couldn't measure anything from fluoroscopy. I, I, I used to have a student who would do cine radiography and pin his nose to the television camera on the wall with a with a, a an inch tape, trying to measure the movement between the vertebra, <laughs> which is really pretty futile. He'd freeze frame it. I thought, you know, that's no good. This has got to be done digitally. So I was really looking around for a digital method 
of um, getting these fluoroscopic sequences and getting some measurements out of them. And I realized that's got to be done with image processing. And M image processing in those days uh, contained about 64 megabytes. That's as much as you got. With a processor speed that was incredibly slow and uh, online online memory that was much less than 64 megabytes. So it's, it's amazing you could do anything with images. Uh, and I was naive enough to try. <laughs> um, uh, I put it in not for me to do, but for one of the eight PhD subjects that I wanted my colleagues in the chiropractic college to do, because we needed PhDs here in order that we could get a degree, we could confer a degree. And nobody wanted this one. Um, so I wound up doing it, and all it showed was it was actually feasible to do this, measure the uh, range of motion, range of translation, center of rotation, all these other things. But you had to do it by hand. You had to mark up every image by hand. The computer would do the calculations for you, but it wouldn't track the images because there wasn't even enough memory to hold four of them on at one time and play them. That was how pathetic computing was. So we got to the stage where around 2000, computing was getting faster, and I got a grant from the National Health Service to actually develop this technology under a, a thing called New and Emerging Aspects of Technology. So I got a, I hired a radiographer to do the imaging for me, and we basically worked this thing up into a technology, uh, which we could actually track images, could actually standardize the way things were uh, measured, so that you could reproduce them from patient to patient and between patients, and uh, patented it for the college. And this is where this orthokinematics comes in, which is a commercial medical devices company that uh, has commercialized it in the United States. But in the meantime, we've carried on with uh, research into it. And one of the things that we very soon had to realize is that there needs to be an agreed way of using this in other words, do people bend over freely or is there bending controlled? How fast do they go? How fast do they start? How far do they go? And all of these other questions. So I uh, engaged with some great people, Gene Carrigy in uh, Stanford, Deidre um, Tayen uh, down in uh, U.S. Army Baylor, Chris Wong in Hong Kong, who'd done these sort of things before. Uh, so we agreed how this technology should operate as advice for anybody else who wanted to try it. And that's what that paper is about. It was an international forum to give a consensus on how quantitative fluoroscopy should be done. Yeah, that's terrific. I, I really appreciate the explanation. That gives me a, a great background in, in a quantitative fluoroscopy. So... Um, for the chiropractor, what what do you see this technology being able to do, um, either at the moment or coming in the future? Where do, where do you see this going with quantitative fluoroscopy? Okay, well, there's two sides to it, both of which we've experienced. One is solving problems for the chiropractor or the surgeon or the rheumatologist or whoever cares about the mechanics and the stability of the segments of the spine. Um, and the other is to research it. So um, as far as researching, that includes developing, developing it, making the measurement better, faster, having more measurements that mean more. Uh, and as far as the diagnostic side, helping the chiropractor with problem patients, the problem patients at the moment, or, or at least uh, all, 
back for the last 15 years has about been about instability. So it started off with surgeons saying, I fused this patient, they've got back pain again. Does that mean my fusions come loose? Well, the only way to find out is to do detailed dynamic motion and measure it to see if it, if it actually moves anywhere along the line. Doing a flexion extension x-ray will only give you two pictures. It doesn't tell you if it moves somewhere else along the line. So um, as far as the surgeons were concerned, that was useful. As far as the chiropractors are concerned, it was about the idea, well, this person is getting recurrent back pain, and it seems to me as if they've got one of their segments is loose or is not being held on together properly. And the only way that we can find out is to measure the, the movement dynamically in two planes and see if it's normal. Well, as soon as you ask that question, the next question is, what is normal? And so that, that took us into the, the research studies, uh, which have been going on for a long time with healthy control people with no low back pain of all ages, both genders, uh, to find out what the normal ranges of motion are, what the normal slackness is, where the normal centers of rotation are, and how motion is normally shared between the segments. So that's the research side, and this is where it's now beginning to get very interesting. Yes, it is. That's terrific. Uh, great explanation. So let's get into some of these papers then. Um, the next one I'd like to talk about is uh, a paper that came out in 2016. This was uh, the idea of uh, looking at relationships between paraspinal muscle activity and lumbar intervertebral range of motion. And this was published in the journal Healthcare. Uh, could you tell us what you were looking at in that paper? Well, I was looking at getting somebody a PhD because... <laughs> that works. Because... Um, we had a we had a great guy who wanted to do a PhD. His name is Alistair DuRose, uh, and he's a chiropractor who had been practicing for about three years and decided that he wanted to get into academia. And uh, we had a grant uh, to link, to, to do two things. One was to do our quantitative fluoroscopy and measure the movement dynamically between the bones. But, but the other thing we wanted to do was to see how the activity of the muscles matched up with the movement of the bones. Um, so this is an ideal thing for a PhD study because it's never been done before. So we did surface electromyography at the same time as we did quantitative fluoroscopy in forward bending standing up. And Alistair studied um, the uh, degree of muscle activity all the way through the bend and correlated that to the uh, ranges of motion and the slackness of the vertebra and healthy controls. Um, and so there, were, there are relationships, and they depend on interesting things like how much of a lordosis you've got. I mean, you've probably heard of sagittal balance. It's quite important in orthopedics now. Mm -hmm. um, if you have, a, if you have um, a virtually low, no lordosis, um, that's, that's quite bad for any suggestion of an unstable segment in the lower lumbar spine, CL4-5. Well, what Alistair discovered is that if you have a hypolordosis, just on the movement alone, the IV-ROM, intervertebral range of motion at L4-5, is going to be greater anyway. So your painful segment is going to be strained. But if certain muscles are contracting a lot, that effect will be reduced. And if they're, not, if they're contracting very much less or if other muscles are contracting more, it will be made worse. So interesting facts like that kind of tell you 
what else is out there in a segment which is uh, mechanically embarrassed. Uh, if it's already mechanically embarrassed because it's, say, slack, uh, it's going to be even more embarrassed if it's a hypolordosis and you have an, in, an inverted um, uh, lumbar erector spinae to thoracic erector spinae ratio. This TES to LES ratios have been researched before, and they have something to do with low back pain. So it's bringing all these parameters together. Up to that point, all we were able to do um, was to measure the intervertebral motion in the spine. So it was all about spine kinematics and stability and uh, coordination and things like that. But now we were able to add loading and add muscle activity. So the model is becoming more detailed and yes. obviously more complicated too. Yeah, yeah, terrific. Great stuff. Okay. So that paper really published all those things, yeah, all and, those relationships. And I mean, obviously those, uh, with you explaining it, to, to me it makes a, a whole lot more sense now how uh, a chiropractor in practice could use uh, all of that information to make more informed decisions, uh, to better take care of their patients. Uh, I could see that having wide ramifications in, in research, trying to identify people that may respond better to a certain type of care as well. So that's terrific. Thank you. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about another paper, which was um, published in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies in 2014. And the paper was, uh, does intervertebral range of motion increase after spinal manipulation? And uh, it seems that, of course, uh, we as chiropractors uh, feel that there's certainly changes that that take place at the intersegmental level. So can you tell us about uh, what you found in this paper? Sure. Well, this is a question that you're right, is on everybody's lips. And uh, there's been some great work done on whether spinal manipulation increases stiffness, whether it relaxes muscles, what the neurological effects are. I know Greg Kochuk's been doing some work, some excellent work just recently on uh, the effects of a high velocity manipulation on stiffness in the segment, just, just been publishing that. Um, but this paper was in the neck and it was, guess what, another PhD student, um, a Scottish uh, gentleman called Johnny Branny, who was also a chiropractor, um, who was very interested in getting into research. So we got funding for him to do a PhD on um, quantitative fluoroscopy before and after neck manipulation in people with neck pain. And we compared that to a control group who had no neck pain and no manipulation. And basically what we found was that, yes, um, people with neck pain have a lower range of spinal motion in the first place, as flexion extension motion segmentally at segmental levels. But there, there is no significant increase after spinal manipulation, or there wasn't in these 30 patients that were, that were done. And they, were, they didn't increase any more than controls were from who were completely untreated. But it's the, you have to interpret it with a little bit of caution, uh, because one of the things that we learned was the intraceptic repeatability of measuring these things, which is not great. Um, it's not that bad, but you couldn't really measure I can't remember what the number is, but you couldn't measure an increase in range of motion unless it was at least three and a half, four degrees, um, because the intersubject variability was too high. The minimal detectable change was about three to three or four degrees. 
So it may be that um, there was a slight increase, although there wasn't really a statistically significant increase either. Or maybe there's not supposed to be an increase. But that's what this paper showed. Sure, sure. And did you uh, did you look at any um, coordination effects, like one segment uh, relative to a segment above or a couple of segments above by chance, and how the pattern oh, of motion? That That is something we're going to do now. In fact, Johnny is uh, is now working at Bournemouth University, and that's the next thing he wants to do. He's got his PhD, he's finished, he's got a job, um, and he's a postdoc here. He's a visiting uh, researcher here, and we still got all that data. Uh, so he's planning to come back and and uh, dive into that. All right, good stuff. Love that. Um, the next paper I'd like to talk about was published in the European Spine Journal, and this was uh, looking at proportional lumbar spine intervertebral motion patterns, a comparison of patients with chronic, nonspecific low back pain and healthy controls. So if you could tell us uh, what what this paper was about, and then uh, if you could tell us about the findings too, that'd be terrific. Sure. Well, this paper was about restraint um, uh, and motion sharing in the lumbar spine. Okay. Um, and it was another quantitative thoroscopy paper. Um, it's, it was pretty apparent that the we weren't finding out any difference between patients and controls in non-specific low back pain, just in terms of range of motion, whether it was uh, angular motion or translational motion. Um, there had also been some studies done um, by Deidre Tain again and Chris Wong, the ones who came to San Francisco for the forum, on slackness or something called attainment rate, which is how quick it rotates. Um, and that was kind of suggestive that uh, people with low back pain might have slacker joints than people without. Um, but the way that we, again, we could measure all this dynamically with our lying down uh, quantitative fluoroscopy, because there was no muscle contraction. It was just all about how the restraint went. Um, and if we looked at it, looked at vertebrae individually, we didn't find anything. And this wasn't me, this was another PhD student who is a radiographer, uh, and she got a government grant to do this from our National Institutes of Health Research uh, Clinical Doctor Research Fellowship Scheme, which allowed her to work for five years uh, to do this PhD, and she went into it in tremendous detail. But what we found out is that if you look at segments individually, you don't find any difference between patients and controls. But if you look at their, their motion patterns that shared throughout the lumbar spine, in other words, whether their patterns are shared evenly or not, you find that it, the people who have just non-specific low back pain and are lying down with no muscle activity at all and being bent, the sharing of motion between their lumbar segments is more uneven than people who don't have any back pain at all but are matched match for age and gender. And that was kind of hinted at in a previous quasi-static study, in other words, just flexion extension x-rays, by Haxby Abbott a few years later. Uh, but he didn't get significant results. But because of the dynamic studies, we were able to get significant results. Um, that was, uh, for us, very, very interesting because we then realized that it's not about individual segment, it's about function, uh, integrated function throughout the spine, if you like, even integrated dynamic function throughout the spine that's got something to do with whether you've got pain or not. 
Yes, indeed. I do like that integrative dynamic function. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, based upon those results, then, if, if you can detect uh, some increase in the pattern of mobility in these uh, low back pain patients, what, um, I'm just trying to leap ahead, maybe, uh, hopefully not too much, but uh, when we find that, uh, you know, their motion pattern is changed when they're up walking, etc., and that uh, the erector spiny tend to produce uh, more contraction. Do you think that's because of the increase in segmental, or not segmental, but the coordinated pattern that you see? Yeah, and there's, two, there's two ways of looking at it. There's, there's lying down, which is all about restraint. Right. And then there's standing up, which is all about what I think you're interested in, which is control. Yes. And and when you, when you stand and you bend over... Um, uh, what we find with these studies is that you're, if you have low back pain, your motion patterns are more uneven as you, when you bend over. Um, but what you also find out, and this is well, this has not been done in people with back pain, but the stronger the muscle contraction, uh, the less of that unevenness you get, which is which makes sense, doesn't it? Sure. Just nobody's ever shown it. Um, but we've just done a study. Uh, which showed that uh, the more ordinary activity you have in your muscles, electrical activity on EMG, the less uneven that motion is, which sort of says um, back-strengthening exercises are a good thing if you've got that. And because that unevenness is, is linked to low back pain, uh, and it's also linked to disc degeneration. So we've got this link going on between uneven motion, low back pain, disc degeneration, and muscle uh, contraction activity. And there are relationships in between them that we would love to explore further. Yeah. Um, we've, only, we've only just discovered they exist. That's as far as we've got. Well, we can have but, fun, though, uh, extrapolating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Theorizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think, uh, certainly, that might be one explanation for why physical activity has uh, been shown to be the the largest uh, way to prevent, um, you know, pain, uh, musculoskeletal pain, essentially in general, but back pain specifically. Uh, and, then it yeah. make, and then it also makes me think uh, about how chiropractic affects uh, neurologically the muscle contraction and how that may be uh, a, a player in, in what we're talking about right now with stabilization. Sure. I mean, I, I just have to uh, sound a word of warning I don't just believe in biomechanics. There's a whole spectrum of effects, neurological effects, chemical effects, cytokines that are part of the low back pain problem. Uh, I wouldn't want anybody to think I'm stuck on biomechanics and that's the only thing it can ever be. Um, you have to take on the whole complexity. Uh, so it's just to assure you that I, 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 I would. Well, that's, I believe that. Oh, yeah. I Well, I, I get that from talking with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely now i just want to get your uh your idea about one concept in the literature uh and that is um uh, something that uh punjabi i think was i don't know if he was the first one to talk about it but that's the idea of the the neutral zone i've always uh, mm. had a fascination with that um, could could you give us some insight as to what the neutral zone is 
Yeah, it's the um, it's the position where uh, near the near the neutral position where the movement of a vertebral will not be opposed at all. Um, very little force is needed to move it. Usually, I think the number is about point not not five newtons. Is is uh, it'll move if you push it with not point not 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 five newtons. And the neutral neutral zone is how far you can push it with not point not not five newtons. Okay. So it's the it's the it's the motion it's the range of motion, uh, usually angular range of motion, of a vertebral motion segment uh, that you will get uh, when you push it, uh, and it depends obviously on how slack it is. Got it, got it. So so it it depends on uh, being able to measure the angle, and being able to measure the force, which of course you can't do in living people. Uh, it's all these studies are done in cadavers, although a couple have been done in people under anesthetic in an operating table. But um, it's so important. I think you're right. It's, it's really important. So we've developed a surrogate measure for it, which is how fast it moves in the first um, few uh, degrees of motion near, near the neutral position under a standardized perturbation, standardized bend. And that's called the attainment rate, which is, I talked about a little bit before, is yeah. what Deirdre Tain and Chris Wong looked at. But we've taken it and um, developed it a bit to be the slope of the intervertebral rotation graph in the first 10 degrees of movement of the trunk. Arbitrary, that, 10 degrees. Um, and so we've got normative ranges for that. And we've also got a good correlation between that and the real neutral zone, which we calculate at the same time. Uh, in an animal, you know, just a cadaveric experiment of a pig spine, measuring the real neutral zone with force and angles, and the attainment rate using speed and, and angles. And they correlate quite well. So we think that maybe we've got a surrogate measure for the neutral zone in living people. Ah, very interesting. So that was in chiropractic and manual therapies as well. My son, who's a physicist and works with me, published that. Okay, terrific. I'll have to check that one out. Um, have you ever seen in your uh, fluoroscopy studies uh, an injury take place at the time that you were actually recording the information? Um, I'll, I'll just give you a little pretext to this. Um, uh, I listened and and read a lot of Dr. Stuart McGill's work, and and. They seem to do a video fluoroscopy study of a weightlifter, if I remember correctly, who yes. uh, had had an instantaneous, uh, I guess, a few degrees of motion occur um, just in a momentary period of time that they seem to correlate with the, uh, the injury mechanism. Um, yeah, and I, th I think that was under load. I mean, at the same time as I was doing my PhD, Stuart McGill was supervising another PhD student who became one of the world's foremost bioengineers, his name is Jacek Kolowicki, and he's up at Michigan State. Um, and he has done an enormous amount of work, not with the fluoroscopy, even though that's what he got his PhD in, um, but with other aspects of um, spine control. Um, and he, his, his, his expertise is in the, the ways of doing the calculations on spine control. Ah. And he was a weightlifter. Oh. He was that weightlifter. Oh. who had those videos done on him. Okay. Uh, under, under a, I don't know how much he was lifting, but the fluoro happened, was being played while he lifted, and, this, and the slip was shown. I believe it was him. 
um, was shown on the fluoroscopy. And that's probably what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. But I've never asked, never asked anybody to lift 300 pounds <laughs> while I was doing fluoroscopy on it. So it hasn't happened to me. It has never happened to me, honest. <laughs> oh, I figured I'd ask anyways. <laughs> I know, that's right. Oh, so Dr. Breen, are there any other studies that you'd like to talk about? Um, only just briefly, um, that study I told you about proportional motion and how it's more uneven, we've just replicated that um, and brought in disc degeneration um, and found that uh, same things happens. If you've got low back pain, uh, you have more uneven motion. Um, and if you have disc degeneration uh, and low back pain, the three of them go together. In fact, if you've got these three considerations, disc degeneration, low back pain, and uneven motion, if you've got any two of them, you'll have the third. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't worked out what the, what the real consequences of that are, but I have a feeling that explains, it helps to explain the role of disc degeneration in low back pain. And there's, there's some facts that are coming forward that are beginning to explain the relationship of disc degeneration to low back pain. And when you get it, and so far, it looks like it's when you've got uneven motion. And, and we know already that it's also when you've got swelling in the end plate, modic one change. So we're getting a powerful uh, set of diagnostics now to say your low back pain has got to do with your disc degeneration, or no, it doesn't. Hmm. So that's one study that I just thought I'd mention. Yeah. And then maybe the, la- maybe the last thing to mention is that we're now factoring in loading using finite element analysis, which I have to tell you, I don't understand. I could not do it. But I have some great people around me, and uh, fortunately, we have an MRI here, which can do three-dimensional extrapolations, and we also have the quantitative fluoroscopy. So we've just finished a study with Exeter University where we put the dynamic study, dynamic mathematical information from the fluoroscopy onto the 3D um, boundary conditions from the MRI and play it. And then we can extrapolate uh, where the loading in is and when it happens during the dynamic sequence. And that will tell you when your back is coming under stress. Now, this isn't off-the-shelf. This is not, is not an off-the-shelf diagnostic tool. It's just a tool that we're gradually, gradually assembling because it's more and more, it's very complicated. And if you add muscle contraction to that, if you add whether you've had an injury to that, all these other things, you have a, an individualized model of uh, somebody's lumbar spine, uh, which assesses how much stress it will take. Yeah, and that, I mean, that really gets into the idea of personalized care. I mean, tailored to the individual with the mechanics and the neuro and everything involved. That's terrific. Yeah, that's, uh, I hope I live to see it because it's really exciting. It's really fantastic. That's great. Well, I know you, you've already talked a little bit about your um, quantitative fluoroscopy device. Um, can you tell us more about if anybody's interested in checking that out? Uh, where, where can they find that? Well, I mean, the papers which we've published, and I think you mentioned them, I can make those available, or you can have a look on ResearchGate at my profile there. Okay, terrific. Um, 
because uh, our our we have our project is there, and you can look at the project and share it. Okay. Um, or if anybody wants the papers, just uh, inform me, and I'll send them to you or give okay. you the references. And I can I can put a link uh, if you want onto our website as well. So that'll be terrific. Sure. If you like, you can link to my institute's website, okay. uh, which shows the motion sequences and the the way in which the patient is moved as well. Ah, terrific. I'll do that. Speaking about the Institute, can you tell us about that? Um, it's about to change. Okay. Um, it's about to become the Clinical Biomechanics Research Institute, uh, which is because it's all clinical biomechanics now. Uh, this uh, biomechanics that we're doing has taken over, so we no longer do epidemiological studies of outcomes and clinical trials and surveys and uh, implementation uh, and so it, it's now becoming a Clinical Biomechanics Research Institute, having been an institute that did epidemiological studies, uh, guidelines, and then implementation of guidelines um, through, I guess, up until about 2010. Okay. Now we're completely swamped with this. Okay. Uh, can you tell us what uh, I'm just fascinated by uh, your career and uh, you do so many things. Can you tell us what a typical day or week is like in your life? Um, I, I run an MRI um, service here. We bought a, a unique MRI scanner, which is an open upright MRI uh, scanner in order that chiropractors could learn more about the use of MRI in practice and our students could too. And we could also engage more with the local community because uh, a lot of people can't have an MRI because they're claustrophobic or they've got deformities that won't let them into a narrow tunnel. Um, so doing that keeps me very busy as well as trying to do research. So a typical day for me is to get up really early and try and work before I come to work <laughs> uh, and, then, and then enjoy myself at work talking to people uh, and helping people. Um, and doing things like we're doing now, um, and then uh, usually going to bed early. Sounds good to me. Well, it doesn't happen all the time, but it <laughs> tends to be what happens quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Breen, what do you see as some of the more important uh, issues facing chiropractic research these days and, and projecting maybe into the future as well? Um, I think it's the choice of subject matter to study um, I'm kind of aware uh, that uh, we've gone quite far down the, the psychosocial line. I mean, everybody has, uh, and it's very, very important, um, psychosocial predictors of outcome and so on. But I'm beginning to think we're studying ourselves now. Um, and uh, Maybe I'm just biased because I like. I think my own work is so important. You know, everybody thinks their own work is the most important thing, uh, and it's not. Um, but I think refinement of um, of the um, the pathophysiology of spinal pain is a long time is a long time has been waiting for a long time to be accelerated. Uh, so I think that is that is really important. Spinal control, I think, is very important. Uh, a proper understanding of spinal control would really help chiropractors uh, in their diagnosis. Um, so I think that's important. Uh, and it's basically getting the results out there as you're doing. So congratulations, Dean. That's fantastic the way you're uh, publicizing what we punters are trying to do. 
Well, that's that's great. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's just fun talking about chiropractic and especially chiropractic research. So it's a blast for me. I love it. Could you offer any advice to to students or chiropractors who might wish to become chiropractic scientists in the future? Sure. Um, it's an all-encompassing thing, uh, and it's not a hobby. A lot of people have said that. Um, but I would just like to stress that it's really a very, uh, it's a lot of work. It's hard work. You've really got to be dedicated. So um, if you do, say, a PhD, the reason for doing a PhD is not to walk around calling yourself doctor. It is actually to do research and lead research, uh, which is not easy, but it is great fun. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, Dr. Breen, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. Learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.